this concept of the world has, has really gone with very little exposure, very, really, very uh, little really said about it. And so I would tell you that I think that in, in especially the last decade or two, um, it feels like not a lot has been said in the Western tradition of the church about this temptation to the world. Very little has been said about the dangers of the world outside of, again, like some angry preachers. And so as a result, I think many followers of Jesus are blind to the threat posed by the culture's social environment that we live in. Our network of relationships, our entertainment choices, our economic operating systems, right? And our intake of news information. The Google-sourced wisdom by which we navigate life, like very little is really commented on this. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that even though it's been out of the mainstream and, and even in the church not given a lot of exposure, that the gravitational pull of the world is now greater than it's been in centuries. It's big, it's enormous, like it's staring you down and it is something that we have to fight against. Right. Well, hey, we are continuing on in a teaching series today uh, called The Three Enemies of the Soul. Uh, we're in week eight, uh, so two months now we have been in this uh, teaching series uh, where we've defined those three enemies as the devil, the flesh, and the world. I, I mentioned last week a uh, really important piece of information that this is not an original concept with us uh, here at our church or with uh, us as pastors. Uh, this is actually a concept that uh, uh, exists all the way back to the first century. This is something that's been taught in uh, Orthodox Christianity for 2,000 years, um, our spiritual ancestors uh, in, the, in the early days, they, they held these beliefs that when it came to their relationship with God and their fidelity to the way of Jesus, that there were three things that were the, the most significant obstacles to that faithfulness. And it was, it was the enemy called the devil, the enemy called the flesh, and the enemy called the world. And so we've just spent a lot of time in this series kind of trying to, to bring them back into the conversation. Because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but it seems like in recent times, especially, all three of these have gotten way less exposure. Uh, they've been talked about way less in terms of things to like guard against or things to be aware of. You know, there seems to be a lot of people uh, especially in the world, but I'd say also in, in the church who, who aren't even sure if they believe that the devil's real. You know, there's a lot of people who aren't sure what, you know, what to think of when you talk about the flesh as something to resist as opposed to something to just give, give into or, or to indulge. And then, and then when you talk about the world as an enemy, that can create all sorts of confusion in people. They don't know, like, like what are we really talking about? And so we're in week eight. We're, we're coming towards the end of this series. We're actually going to wrap it up next week. But uh, so, so we're in this section on the world, and if you were here last week, you know, we started talking about the world in depth, and if you weren't, I want to just kind of recap for a moment, kind of get us all back caught up to speed, so we kind of know what we're talking about in terms of, of the world as, as the third great enemy of, of our soul. So in the New Testament, the term the world uh, can be used uh, like three or four different ways. Uh, it can be used to refer to our planet, right? That makes some sense. It can, you know, the cosmos, planet Earth. It can also be used to refer to humanity. You think of the iconic line in John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world uh, that he gave his one and only son. So that's, that's, that's not referring to the planet or the cosmos, right? That's referring to the human race, mankind. Uh, God obviously loved people, and that's why he sent his son. 
But there's another way this term, the world, can be used. Because when you think about those first two uh, uses, none of them sound like something that we need to guard against, right? Like, like humanity is not our enemy. The planet is not our enemy. But there's a third use that kind of brings this into focus of what we're talking about. This, the, the, wor- the term the world can be used to refer to something much more sinister, much more evil, much more insidious. It can be used to refer to this sort of system of practices in our society that is based on secularism, humanism, and quite honestly, hedonism, right? And, and I really think that this is, this is what Jesus has in mind in the New Testament here when he starts to talk to his followers and give them warning about the world. Uh, in John 15, he says this. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Right? So he's not talking about the planet here. Right? He's not talking about even mankind. I mean, we definitely see instances where Jesus was hated by people but he's not speaking about the human race in terms of you know, all people hating him. He's talking about something much more evil, much more sinister, a spirit, the spirit of the age, something going on, operating in the background, uh, a system of this world that is opposed to the way of Jesus. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it first hated me. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own, right? As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and this is why the world hates you. So Jesus is speaking here about this contentious relationship that he has with the world, right? That, that he, he lives, uh, lived his life in, in really direct contrast and opposition to the ways of this world. And he, he paints this idea, this picture here, that this is not just true for him, this contentious relationship, but that it's true for his followers as well. And so Jesus' words here in John 15, they really reflect a dilemma that I think all believers face today. It's this thought that, you know, we are humans living in time and space on this planet right now, but we are not to take part in the world's spirit, values, or habits. It's, it's this, like, real dilemma. I think we all feel this real struggle, this real challenge that, like, hey, we're living here. Like, this is where we live right now, you know? And, and, and even though we live in this world and we're surrounded by the systems of this age and the spirit of this age, we are to resist. We're not to take part in the world's spirit, values, or habits. We're to remember that we are, that we are citizens of heaven, right? That our citizenship is in heaven, according to Philippians chapter 3. That we are children of God and not under the control of the evil one, according to 1 John chapter 5. We're to remember that we are not in the realm of the flesh, but that we are in the realm of the Spirit, according to Romans 8, 9. And we're to remember that we're not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, 2. So it's the old adage that, you know, uh, many of us probably think is even a scripture in the Bible because it's used so often, this idea of that, that we should be in the world, not what? Not of the world. Right? That's really what Jesus teaches. That's really what the New Testament writers are talking about, that we are to be people who are obviously in the world, but, but as Jesus says here, I have chosen you out of the world. Not, not out of this world like, like we're all to live in caves, or you know, maybe some of you would like that, or, or, or we're just to completely you know, you know, ignore the world. No, no, no. Like, like we're, to, we're to contribute to the flourishing of our society, of, of this place that we live. Um, 
but he's, he's pulled us out in, more, in, 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 in a way that, that we're not to conform to these systems, we're not to, control, or, or to conform to the spirit of, of the age. And so we're to be in it, not of it, right? In it, not of it. So the Bible's full of all sorts of instruction. When you read through it, all kinds of instruction for us to really live apart from the world. And yet the fact remains that we live in the world and we're not immune to its influence or its charm, are we? And so it's a real threat. It's like a real challenge. And so I want to I help, help, help remind you just, just how significant this is. And so the definition that we're, we're using for the world is this as a reminder. Um, the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. You remember that from last week? That's what we've been talking about this over and over and over again in this, in this series, the uh, rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. So everything starts, what we've learned in this series, everything starts with deceptive ideas or lies that we believe about reality, mental maps that come from the devil, not Jesus, and they lead to death, not life. But these deceptive ideas, they only get as far as they do because they actually appeal to our disordered ideas, our flesh, right? They're like, they're, they're, they're lies that we are prone to believe because we actually want to believe that they're true. They, they play to these disordered ideas, our flesh, right? But then those desires, the desires of our flesh are normalized in a sinful society, creating a kind of echo chamber for the flesh. And this is what we call the world coming in to complete the circular loop we call the three enemies of the soul. So the thing about the world that we have to understand is that the, the world is, is quite honestly something that we just don't talk about very much anymore. Like it doesn't get the same level of airtime or exposure in the church or even outside the church as something to resist or something to, to guard yourself against anymore. Do you remember when this was much more commonplace? If you grew up in church or you're around, do you remember when this was much, much more commonplace? Maybe if you grew up in church like I did, maybe you remember some of like the old time preachers just railing against the ways of this world. Remember some of those, you got those, some of those images burned into your brain. Not all of it was bad. Some of it was probably bad, but not all of it was bad. Some of it was probably very, very necessary. It just seems, you know, as I think back at some of the pictures in my brain, it just seems like just, just so foreign for something like that to happen uh, today. It just seems uh, uh, like it was much more commonplace uh, in, in, a, in a prior generation in the church than it is now. In his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, author C.S. Lewis, um, he writes, I think, I think one of his most interesting books, if, 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 any, if any of you read, read The Screwtape Letters, um, if you're not familiar with it, uh, it, it, it's basically a book where, um, you know, it, it's a book really on spiritual warfare. It's, it, it's, it's a book uh, really about like what's going on behind the scenes. And so he he, uh, he writes this book with sort of the senior demon, uh, a guy by the name uh, that he calls Screwtape. He's actually the uncle to uh, this, this, this uh, other demon named Wormwood that he's mentoring in the ways of the demonic or how things, you know, how to like tempt people and how to, you know, how, how to get them to give in to sin and all this stuff, how to trap them and things like that. And so... Um, 
If you're not familiar with the book, everything is sort of flipped upside down as the two demons are communicating with each other in the book. So, so um, in the book, the enemy that they're referring to is Jesus, right? So the, again, it's two demons talking, and so their enemy is Jesus. And so there's a quote here from the book I want to I share with you. It says this uh, in the Scriptape letters, the enemy, the enemies, or, or Jesus, right? Jesus' servants have been preaching about the world as one of the great standard temptations for 2,000 years. But fortunately, they have said very little about it for the last few decades. In modern Christian writings, though I see much, indeed more than I like, about mammon, I see few of the old warnings about worldly vanities, the choice of friends, and the value of time. All that your patient would probably classify as Puritanism. And may I, may I remark in passing that the value we have given to that word is one of the really solid triumphs of the last hundred years. By it, we rescue thousands of humans from temperance, temperance chastity, and sobriety of life. So to clarify here, Scrutate, by when he's talking about rescuing these humans, he's really talking about ruining their life. Right? So nobody is talking about all of this for decades, the senior demon says to Wormwood. The book was published in 1942, 80 years ago, for nearly a century. Uh, C.S. Lewis is writing in this book this idea that this concept of the world has, has really gone with very little exposure, very, really, very uh, little really said about it. And so I would tell you that I think that in, in especially the last decade or two, um, it feels like not a lot has been said in the Western tradition of the church about this temptation to the world. Very little has been said about the dangers of the world outside of, again, like some angry preachers. And so as a result, I think many followers of Jesus are blind to the threat posed by the culture's social environment that we live in, our network of relationships, our entertainment choices, our economic operating systems, Right? and our intake of news information. The Google-sourced wisdom by which we navigate life, like very little is really commented on this. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that even though it's been out of the mainstream and, and even in the church not given a lot of exposure, that the gravitational pull of the world is now greater than it's been in centuries. It's big, it's enormous, like it's staring you down and it is something that we have to fight against. Philip Reif, who was a, a sociologist of religion and one of the great minds of the 20th century, broke down Western history into three uh, phases. If you look at his paradigm on the screen, he talked about first culture, uh, second culture, and third culture. And in the first culture, uh, he called it the pre-Christian culture. So again, this is Western history. And he breaks it down into like how it's developed. So, so first culture was a pre-Christian culture. So this is the Roman Empire before the gospel. This is Celtic Ireland before St. Patrick, right? This is a, a world of gods and goddesses. It's a world of spirituality and superstition, a world of violent, fear-motivated tribes at war with each other. But, but then what happens is the gospel then comes, Right? And whether it's to Rome or it's to Ireland or it's to Britain, wherever, and now there's peace and there's reconciliation as the gospel is proclaimed and people receive it. There's healing. And the gospel takes root in each of these cultures. They're forever changed. 
And, and then they move into phase two that Reef calls the second culture or a, a Christian culture. The better way really to say it is a Christianized culture. Reef talked about how there's really no such thing as a Christian nation or a Christian culture. At best, it's a mix of Christianity and paganism or later on a mix of Christianity and secular ideas, values, and practices. So this is Great Britain in the 19th century. This is, this is the United States from the Second Great Awakening to the, about the 1950s. If you look at this thought, the second culture refers to a time in the West when the basic framework of Christian thought was accepted across the social spectrum. So many of you remember this, or you know this, we're familiar with this, that there was a time when, when the basic framework for Christian life and morality was widely accepted, right? It was, it was understood even as like the, the, um, the better ethic in a lot of ways. It was, it, was, it was, you know, even for those who weren't followers of Jesus, they would still admire you for trying to live at a standard that, that, they, that most people assumed was a better standard. And, and so this, was kinda, this is kind of the idea of second culture, but then it moves into a third phase, uh, what Reef calls the third culture or a post-Christian culture. And the key to understanding Reef's paradigm is that post-Christian culture is not the same as pre-Christian culture. So in a post-Christian culture, to be clear, like we don't go back to how it used to be. Okay, so you can understand like pre-Christian, right? These people all need to be evangelized. Gospel needs to come in. Then you, then you move into like second culture. This is where Christian thought is widely ex- uh, accepted, even though you know, not everybody's a Christian in culture. It's still like the predominant thought, the predominantly accepted moral and way of life. And then, then you know, culture has moved out of a Christianized culture into a post-Christian culture. And post-Christian is not the same as pre-Christian. In post-Christian culture, we're not going back to the way things used to be where, you know, um, people are now worshiping Zeus and Odin and, like, they're sacrificing their firstborn to, like, the the forest spirits again. You know, that's not going back to a pre-Christian context of, of, um, you know, nomadic tribes and and, and people, you know, like that. Instead, what he gets at when he talks about uh, this paradigm is that um, post-Christian culture is like the West's rebellious teenager moment. You know, um, it's, it's their rebellious teenager moment where they're kicking back against their parents' authority while they're still living in their house and eating their food, basically. Look at this thought. Post-Christian culture is an attempt to move beyond the Christian vision while still retaining much, much of its scaffolding. So, Mark Sayers, uh, in his book, uh, Disappearing Church, which is a great, fascinating book, by the way, um, he talks about post-Christianity in great depth, and he says this. He says, post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Okay? Rather, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith while gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom while defending the reign of the individual will. Okay? So what Sayers is, is saying here, what he's getting at in his book here, is that our society has moved on from its, its Christian past or our Christian-ish past, right? Because we're Christianized. We're not a Christian uh, culture, right? So he's saying we've basically moved on from that. Like that's, that's our past, but, it's, but, 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 but our society still wants to hang on to the parts of it that it likes. 
So in other words, like we've evolved as a society to where we once were more Christianized and now we are post-Christian. And so there's things that we want to reject about a Christianized culture, but in doing so, we're going to still hang on to the parts of the Christianized culture that we liked uh, and, and that we haven't given up on. So post-Christian culture is still very, very moral in a lot of ways. Um, it's just selective in what it deems to be moral. Have you, have you noticed that? So there's a high emphasis on behavior. There's a high emphasis on doing the right thing. It's just that there is a, there is a, um, uh, uh, a difficulty to, to get a consensus on, you know, what, what actually is moral and what is immoral. If you think about the progressive vision that we, that we see kind of pushed and pushed and pushed, the progressive vision is all rooted in Jesus' vision. If you think about equality, you think about human rights, you think about decency, so much of the progressive vision is actually rooted in Jesus and the revolution he started. It's just, it's just a distortion in many ways of what Jesus' vision actually was. Sayers would go on to say this about our culture, and I quote, we want the kingdom without the king. So this is this idea of like there's still things about the, about the way of Jesus and the Christian moral ethic that, that we like and we don't want to completely abandon. We don't want to go back to like a barbaric way in a pre-Christian culture, but we want to evolve and move, move beyond kind of the limits that a Christianized culture put on us. And so, so we're going we're gonna to kind of trust ourselves and allow ourselves to be the, 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 you know, the true authority or the, the better authority and then just hang on to some of the fruit from the Christianized culture that we still don't want to get rid of. Are you, are you with me? Are you catching me? Okay. So here's the point of all of this, all right? I, I, I don't mean to lecture, but here's, here's the point of all of this, all right? What both Reef and Sayers are getting at is that if you're coming from a second culture, okay, so a Christianized culture, and you are going into a first culture or a pre-Christian culture, that there is a danger in that, that, that you end up colonizing the culture, okay? So if you go from a Christian culture, okay, a second culture, into a first culture, pre-Christian culture, the danger is that you colonize the culture. An example of this would be a missionary in the 19th century England who goes to Africa and, you know, if, if many of you may know the stories, but, like, there's a whole bunch of examples of, of, of uh, Western white missionaries going to, to third world places and, and, and completely colonizing villages, countries. Uh, um, think of our African brothers and sisters all dressed up this morning uh, in suits and ties and singing hymns, in, all in English, written by dead white men. Like, like, like that's the danger, Right? So it's the danger is that you bring not only the gospel with you, but you bring your culture with you. You bring your ethnicity with you. So this is, these are people stepping from a Christianized culture into a pre-Christian culture, and they're bringing more than just the gospel with them, right? So, so if you flip it to go the other direction, if you're coming from a second culture, Christianized culture, and you're going to a third culture, all right, or to a post-Christian culture, the danger is not that you colonize the culture, but that the culture colonizes you. That's the difference. That's the difference. That you become colonized by the culture. So, so again, look at this on the screen. You're coming from a Christian culture, or Christianized culture, 
to a post-Christian context, and what happens is that what's going on in a post-Christian world, post-Christian context, becomes so influential and so difficult to resist that you actually become colonized by its values. So, I mean, let's say, let's say you're an immigrant coming from Sudan to America, or, or an immigrant coming from Iraq to America, or to England, or wherever, and let's say you're a follower of Jesus coming from New Point Church, and you're heading out into a post-Christian context. The danger is that you end up becoming colonized by the culture. So if you think about it, what are the odds of a Sudanese refugee coming to America with all of their customs and all of their traditions and all of their culture coming into America and colonizing us, getting us to you know, adapt to you know, their ways and their customs and all those things? It, it's, it's next to impossible, right? It's, it's uh, just not going to happen. It's much more likely that the longer they are here and the more they kind of assimilate to life and kind of learn the way we do things here versus how they do things there, that they end up adapting and adjusting to our culture. Look at this thought with me. In a post-Christian culture, the danger is that we are assimilated into a culture where much of which is good and beautiful and true, but also where much of which is in flat-out rebellion against God and grounded in the definition of, the redefinition of good and evil. Like, that's the danger. Like, that we don't even realize how fast and quick things have changed, how much we have been influenced by the spirit of this age and the ways and customs of the world that we just assimilate without even thinking, hey, maybe this, this action or this belief or whatever it is, it actually flies in contrast to the way of Jesus and what the scriptures teach. And this is why the Apostle John writes the famous words in 1 John chapter 2. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Again, this isn't talking about people it's not talking about humanity. It's not talking about the planet, all you tree huggers out there, right? It is, he's, talking about, he's talking specifically about the, the system of practices in our culture, in our society, based on secularism, humanism, hedonism, all those things. He says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, right, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world, listen, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. So, that's all I've got on the world uh, between last week and this week. Just, just giving some understanding to like what we are up against, and it's, and it's big. And if you weren't able to listen to last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back and check it out just specifically on the world. Um, I'd love for you to get caught up on the whole series if you've missed it, because this has is, this is really, I think, been transformative for many people uh, in our church. But what this leads us to now is, like, how do we resist? Like, how do we actively resist the enemy of the world? So we know that it's a threat. We know that it's an enemy. But, like, how do we, how do we, how do we develop a strategy? How do we actively resist uh, the world. Our working theory in this series has been that spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare, okay? Or said another way, that the practices of Jesus are how we fight the devil, the flesh, and the world. So if you think about in, in the first section of the series, when we talked about the devil as the first great enemy of our soul, we talked about some spiritual practices of, from Jesus's life for how to resist the devil. We talked about things like um, silent prayer, you know? Um, what was the other one? Help me out. Um, 
No, no, that was for the flesh. Talked about, um, I forget, gotta go back and listen. So the second one was, was the flesh, right? We talked about how to resist the, the flesh, and there was, there was two uh, spiritual practices I highlighted in that one. One was fasting, and, uh, and the other one was confession, right? As, as, as things from Jesus' life that we incorporate into our life, they're not just like spiritual disciplines or practices that we just do because like we gotta do these things or we're not gonna be good Christians. We do these things because we understand they build into us the ability to like actually fight back against the very things that wanna destroy us and like, like murder our soul. And so uh, when it comes to the world, there's, there's a spiritual practice that we need to incorporate as well. And, and you may not look at it as, as, a, as a spiritual practice at first. Uh, I would call it maybe the most basic of all that Jesus practiced and modeled. So basic, um, I often think of it less as a practice and more as a social environment in which we're meant to practice the way of Jesus. But um, it's the church. It's the church. Jesus' spiritual practice that is most helpful in our fight against the world is the church. It's community. Jesus modeled community, right? And and so whether you define church as a Sunday gathering, kind of like this around a stage, somebody with a microphone like we're doing right now, or you define church as a much smaller group around a table with, uh, with believers and you're talking about faith and you're just encouraging one another in the Lord, um, it doesn't really matter necessarily, how, I, I, I guess, the point of this, of this um, thought, like how you define church. The point is, is that we cannot follow Jesus alone. You can't follow Jesus alone. It's not possible. There's, there's literally no writer in the New Testament, uh, you know, who, who, who ever assumed that anyone would attempt to do so. You can't follow Jesus in isolation. Jesus did not have a disciple, Right? I know this is kind of, kind of like a silly example, but he didn't have a disciple. He had disciples, right? It wasn't singular, it was plural. The call to follow Jesus was then and still is now a call to join his community of the way. It's a community. And I would, I would just tell you that I, I believe that the greatest danger in the American church right now is the emergence of a DIY faith. A do-it-yourself faith. It's a... a, a a DIY faith is a mix of the way of Jesus. It's got a little bit of the New Testament in it. It's got some identity politics on the right or the left. It's got some consumerism, some progressive sex ethics, radical individualism, and anti-authoritarianism. All of it kind of mixed into one. It's a do-it-yourself. It's taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, and, and uh, coming up with something that works for you. David Tackle in his book, The Truth About Lies, a really good book, by the way, should uh, definitely read it. Uh, you know, some, I know some of you are just adding to your uh, reading list each week as we reference different books. But David Tackle in his book in uh, uh, the Truth About Lies, it's a really a good uh, a good book to to go along with this series. But uh, he says an alarming number of Christians are very prone to viewing their faith as largely a volunteer enterprise, meaning they pick and choose which values they wish to adopt from Scripture and which they will adopt from the dominant culture. This syncretistic approach to faith is only possible because of the unexamined assumption that we are in charge of our doctrine, dogma, and morals rather than God. Much of its appeal lies in the ability to blend in with the surrounding culture, minimize our discomfort, and still hold the illusion of being Christian-like 
in one's behavior. You should take a couple pictures of that. I know that this is really heavy, that's a really heavy thought right here, right? But the truth is that this is not a new one. This is not a new issue. It's, uh, in fact, something that has existed for a long time. Um, Bible scholar, um, uh, uh, great thinker, uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project you might be familiar with, he says this, he says, the Bible is only a few stories that get told over and over and over again. Um, so, so basically, he, he contends that, that as you read the Bible, it's essentially the same half a dozen stories on repeat, you know, that, that, that it's kind of the same ideas, like over and over and over again in the Bible. And so one of the stories we find so often on repeat in the Bible is the age-old temptation of the people of God towards syncretism, where it's no longer Jesus or something else, you know, like like I'm going to follow Jesus or I'm going to follow this or I'm going to if I meaning if I say yes to Jesus means I'm saying no to this or if I'm saying yes to this it actually means I'm saying no to Jesus. So it's syncretism uh, is, is the great temptation of the people of God where it's no longer Jesus or it's become Jesus and. So now it's like, I don't want to just completely say no to Jesus, but I don't want to completely say no to this either. And so I want to have Jesus and I want to have this. I want to, it's, it's Jesus and, Jesus plus. And he says that's, it's the, been the greatest, temp, one of the greatest temptations of the people of God from the beginning, this drift towards like adapting and assimilating to the ways of the world, the, the systems and the beliefs of culture. And, uh, and he says it's highly, highly, highly destructive. Every generation of followers of Jesus has to ask the question, in what ways have I been colonized? In what ways have I been colonized? In what ways have I become assimilated? Where have I bought into the rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil? In what ways? Where have I drowned out the voice of the Spirit with the voice of the world? The reason why syncretism is so dangerous for us is because of this thought, if you're taking notes, the church is a counterculture. It's a counterculture. And this is why syncretism is so dangerous for us, adapting or assimilating or looking, looking you know, strangely um, similar to, to so much that goes on you know, around us in, in, in the dominant culture, not just, not just in here as we gather on a Sunday morning, because quite honestly, what we're doing right here on Sunday is, is, is super strange to the world, right? It, it doesn't make sense. I mean, people coming together, getting up early on a Sunday, you know, coming in, you know, uh, talking to people that normally you would never talk to, uh, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, you know, uh, jobs, all that stuff. You know, what do you really have in common other than Jesus here? Some of you, some, some of us, right? Probably wouldn't be found in the same social context in any other place in life other than church. Or, or, you know, think of how strange it is to come do this and like actually take 10% of your money or whatever percentage, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to trust God with right now and, and, and giving it away. I mean, it's super strange, right? The church is a counterculture. It's meant to be upside down. It's meant to look different. It's meant to be an alternative society, a group sort of on the margins of the host culture, living in an alternative but compelling and beautiful way. So not only, but not only like, like is that true when we come together here, it's meant to be true when we leave and we go out of here. It's meant to be true when people interact with you wherever you are at in a given uh, moment this week, whether you are at work or you're at a restaurant or you're somewhere in public and people interact with you as a follower of Jesus, you are still like, like, 
we are the church as the people, right? They're still interacting with the church when they're interacting with you. And it's meant to be counter. It's meant to be upside down. It's meant to be an alternative society. It's meant to be um, a prophetic sign, signpost to the kingdom life in a culture of death. Um, it's meant to be a signpost of a compelling and beautiful way to live life. And so I believe that there is a tremendous opportunity before us in our cultural moment for the church to come back to her roots as a counterculture. And while I, I certainly hope, you know, like I don't end up imprisoned in the next 50 years or killed for my faith or whatever because, man, we're living so radically different than, than the world, um, I've already made peace with like the obvious reality that I'm never going to fit in, that I'm never going to be cool, but I'm not going to be well-respected or admired by the culture, and that's okay. That's okay. The Greek word for the church is this word, ekklesia. Um, I don't have it on the screen, but it, it, it literally means those who are called out, right? Those who are called out. Meaning those who are called out from the world to live counter to it. So, right, again, we're not living in caves. We're not, like, living in, like, compounds, which is where cults, you know, kind of get a, um, an appropriate bad rap. You know, we don't have barbed wire fences and things like that. No, 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 like, we're living, like, in this world. We're, we're blessing the world. It's like, um, it's like in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 29, those who are in exile, the Jews who are in exile in Babylon are, are called to, to settle down, right, and, and to work for the peace and the prosperity of the city. Like, that's what we do, too, like, as citizens of, this, of, of uh, our, our city and where we live right now. We, we're to bless it. We're to participate in it. But we're also to live counter to its values, its, its ethics, its vision for human flourishing. Because we know that we have a different way um, that is far greater, far better, and it leads to life. So there's something very, 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 very important I got to make clear to you. Um, and I'm, I'm, I got just about 10 minutes to do it. Um, Sunday mornings are important, okay? Coming to church, doing this. I might even go as far as to say it's like very, like very, right, important. These gatherings that we hold each week, they actually do matter. Um, you know, I, I know that we have the ability, like, to get caught up. If you miss church, you know, and you, you, you know, uh, you can go on to our podcast, you can go online, you can find resources to help assist you in, in your relationship with God. But all of that's good, and I, I don't think it's like, it, it's been all, it's, it's good, I just don't think it's been all good. I think that, that there have been habits that have been formed in the Western church especially, as, as we uh, um, have all kind of in some way been practicing our own DIY faith, uh, which, which means that like, I can kind of do this on my own. If I miss church on Sunday, that's fine, I'll just catch the podcast. And let me just tell you, there is, there is something that happens every time I walk in on a Sunday morning here, and I see other followers of Jesus like you around me, I remember that I'm not alone. I remember that I'm not doing this by myself. I remember that there's other people making radical sacrifices to follow Jesus. That I, it's not just me. I'm not the only one out here who's kind of just, just fighting the devil and the flesh and the world. That I've got other people surrounding me, like, like, and we're coming together to all worship Jesus and, 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 and kind of spur one another on, like, hey, man, don't give up. You've got this. You're going to be all right. 
And so, while, so this is what I'll tell you, that while Sunday morning is very important, like it is, and I'm, I'm not going to ever say that it's not, and that you should be here. Like if you're not on vacation and you're not sick, you should be in church. That's where you should be. There's never a good excuse, in my opinion, it, because it just, the reason why is it just, it just leads you down a, point, down a path of, of creating a habit that could be really, really, really devastating for you and your family. The primary way we fight the enemy of the world is through being plugged into a church and having relationships around us that hold us accountable. So if you're, if, if you're on vacation, that's fine, that's great. If, if you're sick, that's great, you shouldn't be here, right? I also tell people this, as, as, like, and it's good for you to know this, like as your pastor, if I see you 52 times in a, in a year, there's something really wrong with that. That's not healthy either, okay? So you should get out of town. You should go make memories with your family. You should do things like that. That's definitely part of life and having a healthy balance and rhythm. But when you're in town, like, like no, like, don't, just, don't just let yourself sleep in. Don't just let yourself make, create terrible habits that will be so difficult to break the longer you continue to give in to, to, to the flesh and kind of the, the ways and the thought patterns of the world. And so while Sunday morning is very, 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 very important, um, let me give you this thought. While the church, the church, so the church is not less than Sunday morning, but, it, but it's, it's actually far more than Sunday morning too. And that's, that's why I, I've got I, I to help you understand and, and catch. Church has to become more than just Sunday mornings in order to, to survive the Western spiritual apocalypse that's going on around us. Like, it has to be more for you. It has to be more for all of us. It has to be more for me than just a Sunday morning experience. And so I would tell you that to become a church for our time, our moment in history, we have to become, if you're taking notes, a community of deep relational ties and a culture of individualism and isolation. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, you are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house. Together we are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So, so the house of God, right? It's not this building. It's not, the, it's not the, the, the physical locations and structures that people go to to meet. Like we are his house, we're built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone of this house is Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, right? We're carefully joined in him, becoming together a holy temple for the Lord. This is language that is used all throughout the New Testament. This is just one spot. I told you already, but there's not one New Testament author that you could, you could read who would, who would have ever just assumed that anyone would ever consider trying to attempt serving Jesus alone apart from the church. Every writer who wrote in the New Testament wrote with an assumption that you were already in Christian community because you cannot serve Jesus by yourself. Howard Snyder says this in his book, The Community of the King. He says, the church is a community of the people of God. Right? He's making a clear distinction that it's not a building, it's not a location, it's not a cathedral, none of that. The church is the people of God. That's why something could, could happen where like, our building could get burned down. Right? We, we, we could come in, I could, I could get, uh, we could get broken into uh, on, on, a, on a Saturday, a bunch of our stuff could be stolen. We could go meet outside or we could go find another location at a hotel. And let me tell you, we could go meet in a very secular building like a hotel where maybe the, the night before there was like a ballroom and all kinds of, you know, whatever going on and, and or, you know, parties and stuff. And we could come in the very next morning, hold, uh, 
hold a gathering where we're worshiping Jesus and, and lifting up his name and, and there is something very holy going on in that place, in a place that just the night before, a whole lot of stuff going on that wasn't holy. I mean, this was pretty much what happened every week when we used to meet at the Tuscany Event Center, right? Uh, which was, a, I mean, every, every night, like we'd come in and we'd hear about like, like crazy bachelorette parties and sorority parties that went on the night before. We'd find stuff like, in, in, like, like that you would not want to find all throughout that place. And then you're going, all right, like, so what? Like, like the, but the people of God are showing up to have church. And it doesn't matter where we meet. All that matters is that the people of God gather together and, uh, and, and something very spiritual and powerful happens. We live in a time, however, where people go to a building on Sunday mornings, they attend an hour-long service, um, it's gonna be a little longer than that today, and call themselves members of the church. Good Christians go to church, right? Do you find anything in Scripture that's even remotely close to this pattern? There's nothing. There's literally nothing in Scripture anywhere close to this pattern or this sort of loose affiliation. There's nothing like it in the Scriptures. And it's fine, like, if, man, if you're not all in or you don't want to, like, you don't want to, like, get this radical, this crazy, fine. Like, I'm not here to, like, to, like, beat you up over the head or whatever. I, I'd love to have coffee with you and talk about, you know, maybe, maybe why, uh, um, I, I, I try to compel you to kind of take a, a, a greater step into community here. But uh, look, like, like if, if you don't want to go all in, you're never going to experience the, the, the life that Jesus really has for you. You're never going to really experience what it means to be a part of the church in a way that is, is super life-giving and, 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 and has the ability to strengthen you in your fight against the world. There's often this togetherness that we read about in the New Testament church that is just missing in our context today. So the idea of being a family, right, it is central to God's idea for the church. And not only is it central, but it was in, it's, it's part of what was intended to set it apart. Um, look at this, this, this quote from Lucian. He was a second century enemy of Christianity, and he's writing to the emperor in Rome, and he says this about his observations of the church in the second century. He says, it's incredible to see the warmth with which the people of this religion help one another. They lack nothing. Their first legislator has convinced them, talking about Jesus, their first legislator has convinced them that they are brothers. Like they actually believe this stuff. But the challenge, right, is that we live in a world that applauds independence and individualism. So much so that we're inundated every day with a cultural message that tells us to find our identity in the things that set us apart, uh, the things that make us different. So whether that's our sexuality or politics or race, the list just goes on and on and on and on. The message looks like this, and we've said it so many times here, you do you. Uh, just do whatever makes you happy. The best place to find yourself is to look deep within yourself, right? Just all junk. Look at this thought. In a world of you do you and keep your laws off my body, we must choose of, of our own free will to live under the authority of the New Testament standard. And we must do this together, okay? In deep, vulnerable, interdependent relationships that stand in sharp contrast to the superficiality and autonomy of our day. That's what has to happen. That is what is needed if you want to successfully fight against the enemy called the world that is, that is hell-bent on the destruction of your soul 
Think of the classic example of like Alcoholics Anonymous. If, anybody familiar with, no, I'm just kidding. Um, just totally kidding. It's anonymous, right? So, um, so think of the classic example of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? AA is all about what? It's all about confession. It's all about trust within relationships that are forged over decades. Now take that example of like Alcoholics Anonymous and like people coming together and they're like, hey, you know, my name's Jordan, I'm an alcoholic or whatever it is. And then, and then think about that and compare it and contrast that to um, all of the posturing that goes on at like a golf and country club. Like, like think about the difference. Uh, the, like the chit chat over here, the, the showing your best side, like, like everything you just, you know, like bought or purchased or, you know, all the things. And then think about like what's really going on, like the raw vulnerability and conversation that's happening at like an AA meeting. Like, listen, the church is meant to be way more, it's meant to look way more like AA and way less like a country club. I hope you, you get that. And when we are, when we look more like AA and much like a country club, like we actually like become the church. We actually drop the facade. We talk about how we deal with real life issues that like, man, this is hard. Like it's not easy to follow Jesus. Like the way of Jesus is difficult. I've got stuff, I've got failures and all these things. And we find ourselves strengthened in our fight against the world. And so, you know, a community of deep relational ties in a, um, in a world of like isolation and individualism it could look like maybe having an unwavering commitment to uh, your life group here at church, those of you who are in life group, to the point where you just are like, man, I can't miss it, I won't miss it, I hate to miss it. Why would anybody do that? Not because, like, this, you know, it's far beyond just, man, these people need to have more friends or they got to have, like, a wider social network. And, man, they're always here. It's not that. The reason why, like, 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 like the, you know, like a rigorous commitment to your life group and never missing um, could help you to develop deep relational ties in this type of, of, of world that we're living in? It's because I think for people like that, they recognize something. They recognize that these people in my group, they are crucial. They are crucial to my ability to be able to faithfully follow Jesus. Like, I can't do this without them. And so, man, it's been two weeks already. I got to get back to group. Like, I can't go a month or two months. Like, I can't just rely on a Sunday morning experience because if I do, I'm going to be vulnerable. If I do, it's going to be that gravitational pull from the world into its patterns and its ways. It's too strong for me to resist on my own. These people that I'm put in relationship with, these people that I'm put in group with are, are crucial in my ability to faithfully follow Jesus. But let's, okay, so that's, that's true. That could be, a, it could be a way. Others of you, maybe you're not in a life group. Fine. Like, some of you, that's your choice. Others of you, like, you want to be. We've just been struggling to kind of get you placed. And, you know, we're praying. Man, would you pray with us that God would just blow open such a blessing over the life group ministry at this church that, like, man, and it would just explode. That I, if there's anything that I would want to be, like, 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 known for is that we just have a huge network of life groups. People never, pe- people uh, never waiting to get in. People who, who are new to our church like easily can assimilate into Christ-centered, uh, growing relationships with other believers because that's like what we're all about here. But like, let's say like some of you here, you're not in a group yet and you can't get into one. Like having deep relational ties with people could look simply like just gathering like two or three other believers and meeting up for coffee consistently. It can look like, hey, we're going to a coffee shop. We're going, you know, we're going to my living room. We're going somewhere, and we're just going to talk. And, and uh, it's all for the purpose of unburdening uh, your heart, confessing your failures, extending love and compassion to 
uh, each other in, in wisdom. I, um, I have actually like a lot. Le- I, I gotta stop. I gotta stop. There was a lot of ad-libbing today. So we can blame the Holy Spirit on that one. I, uh, I uh, read a book recently, um, John Mark Comer, uh, is a, just a fantastic author and pastor, preacher uh, that, that I like to follow. Pastor Josh is influenced by him too. And he gave this example of like, um, essentially like the deep relational ties piece that I'm talking about, about, about living like in accountability to his community. Like the reason why, like he gave an example of how radical of a, of a radical decision he made in his own life. Um, and, and he talks about how, how he uh, creates this annual, annual budget for himself every year, like many of you do. And, and one of the things he put in place is that he actually sits down with his community and, to, and, and puts his budget together. And then he put a spending threshold on himself where if he was going to spend anything over $1,000, he had to run it by his community group. Why, why would he do that? It's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just saying, it. wow, right? Like, I felt a lot of conviction. Why, why would he ever do something like that? Because, because for him, like, there is literally nothing in this life that, that is more important to him than being faithful to the way of Jesus. Like, literally nothing. And he understands, like, like that the, there is nothing in the Bible that, that is talked about more than money and its ability to kind of pull us away from God and, and to get its, its teeth like, and its claws like deep into us. And so he puts himself in a place of like checks and balance and he puts himself in a place where he just says, hey guys, like, this is what I'm thinking about doing. You get anybody, anybody got, a, got, a, got a, 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 a thought on that? Do you think that there's any chance that this could like ruin my soul? Do you think there's any chance that by buying this or doing this or saying yes to this could like, could, like deeply... Uh, ruin my soul? Do you think, you think there's any chance? And, and he just submits himself to that. Like I'm telling you that like, I'm not just talking about going to church or having a life group or you do some nice things. I'm talking about having deeply formed ties, deeply formed relationships with other people who are following Jesus. And when you do that, when you do that with the church, it has the ability to save your life and to keep you from falling down a path and, a, and going down a place that uh, could be highly, highly, highly destructive for you. Why don't you just come up by yourself, dude? Um, yeah. That was like my first point. Um, I'm going to close. There's more, there's so much more than just developing deep relational ties. But we've got to understand like church is way more than just Sunday morning. And like it, this is not, I know that just sounds so self-serving. I mean, I just want people here, you know, no, it's like, if you knew me, you know, I don't, that's not me. Like I, it's for you. Like it's what it's meant to be. And we got to treat this like it's like, like in a way that, you know, I don't want you feeling like guilt and shame over missing on a Sunday morning, but I, I, I just want you to understand like the, 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 the point in it. I want you to understand what it's meant to be, why it, you know, um, why it matters. And to commit to it. Commit to these relationships because we can't follow Jesus in isolation. Amen?
So the church in the West is a minority, not an ethnic minority, but it is a moral and a spiritual one, to say the least, right? It is a minority in the West. Arnold uh, Toynbee says, we are a small but influential group of committed citizens who, motivated by love, bless the host culture, not from the center, but from the margins. That's who we are. John Tyson, obviously one of my favorites, he gets quoted a lot around here, says, a Christian community is a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Way more than a Sunday morning. Way more than a Sunday morning. So there's this word, right, that I I, want to close with. There's this word that is used in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, New Testament. It's used all throughout the scriptures from cover to cover to describe the small group of people inside of Israel and later the church who were loyal to God when the majority of people were not. Like the people who, if you remember this about Israel, you know that like time after time after time, like they would, they would uh, fall away, right? Like they would, they would serve God for a while and then they would go with really whatever was, was common in culture at the time. They'd give themselves over to other pagan gods, pagan practices. But the scriptures talk about how there was this group every single time that stayed faithful, that refused to kind of go along with the majority. It was called, they were called the remnant. Every time there was a remnant of people, right? A remnant of people. Who, you remember um, Sodom and, G- and Gomorrah, right? And, and the idea was like, like, if there was five righteous, like, like would you spare the city? What's he asking for? Is there a remnant? Is there a remnant of righteousness in this city? Is there a remnant that remains of those who are faithful and those who are loyal to God? A remnant is those with courageous fidelity to orthodoxy in a time of widespread syncretism on both the right and the left. And so the question before us today is this, will we join Jesus in the remnant? Will we join him in the remnant? Will we refuse to kind of um, sync up uh, with with the the world and, 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 and justify behaviors that just don't deserve any justification? And make sure that we are people who are fighting the world through the church. Would you stand this morning? I appreciate uh, your patience and your grace uh, this morning. Would you bow your heads? Bow your heads. Holy Spirit, would you just move today in this place? Father, I pray that you would just show us right now through the power of your spirit where, um, where man, we've become so synchronized with the world? Where have we become colonized by the culture? And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you just would shine your light on us right now. If you're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, there are some areas of my life where I feel like I've become colonized by the culture. Could I just see your hand? You want some prayer? You want that to change? Just feel like, yeah, it's happened. Like it, it's happened. I, I've, I've let my guard down. I just was taken for a ride. And you just want freedom in that area. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would come and that you would just set your captives free. God, that you would, uh, you, you would just break every chain. God, you would t- uh, take down uh, every wall in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for just a radical a commitment and a resolve to the way of Jesus. 
uh, that's in such contrast to the way of this world. I pray that you would renew our minds, give us the mind of Christ, Lord, so that we can uh, understand very quickly what is deceptive and what is false and what leads to destruction. Lord, I pray that the things that have been normalized in the greater culture would not be the things that have become normalized in us. Would you set your people apart? Would you show us, God, how to live for you in a time of compromise, in a moment of compromise, in a culture of compromise, and where there has been syncretism? Lord, I pray that there would be in this moment just a radical decision to say no to those things and to set ourselves apart so that we can be like you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen.